You're listening to the Who's Driving Your Car podcast, episode 66. Hello and welcome to the Who's Driving Your Car podcast, where we discuss not only who or what might be driving your life, but also the great views and experiences along the way. Do you drive in the fast lane like my wife, or do you feel like you're stuck in first gear? You only get one life to live, and it can be either a total wreck or a beautiful cruise into the sunset. We are three friends that have collectively experienced almost anything that could possibly happen in this crazy world, and we'll be discussing our personal reflections and experiences so hopefully you can avoid running out of gas and truly enjoy the wind blowing in your hair. So hop on in with us for a little road trip called life, and let's discuss who's driving your car. Aye! What's well, Cracker Liking Podcast World? Welcome back to Who's Driving Your Car, episode 66. So, Cynthia says. Oh, wow! Man, Johnny's excited today. Yes, I am. And I cannot blame him. We got a special guest alone for the ride here, and that is Alan Graham. And he is with Mobile Loaves and Fishes. A uh, little short shout out we want to give a thanks to Caroline Boudreaux. That's right, who's led us in this direction. Um, done a little research on Alan and and what he's got going on in his ministry, and I think it's going to be pretty cool. Um, short background, and I'm going to flip it to Alan here in a minute and let him give you a little more. But he has got a organization called Mobile Loaves and Fishes based out of Austin, Texas. In short, it's a social ministry that has been empowering communities into a lifestyle of service with the homeless since 1998. Um, they do various different things with different um, avenues from mobile trucks to a community, um a village so to speak so it's pretty neat welcome aboard alan hey good to be here guys thank you so much i'm honored to be here oh well we're looking forward to it my man and before we kind of delve into the little warm-up would you rather game i thought it'd be cool if you wanted to maybe tell us a little bit about you well um uh, yeah uh 65 years old as of december 24th 1955 uh can't uh, can't believe where all those years went, but here we are. Uh, I still uh, I still feel like in my 30s and act like I'm in my teens. So. <laughs> Young at heart, I love it. Yeah, I uh, had that same grew up in the too. Houston, Texas area, Alvin, Texas, small town Alvin, uh, uh, Texas. Um, I actually love Louisiana. I've been there a billion times. Uh, right. Spent a lot of time uh, uh, going back. Uh, 40 years in uh, awesome. in that whole area, hunting, fishing, and then serving people during Katrina and Rita, mm -hmm. uh, which was a lot of fun. In fact, Caroline's sister wrote a children's book that featured mobile loads and fishes in that uh, book as one of the rescuers that came in and uh, oh, wow. and rescued. So no pretty kidding. cute. Awesome. And um, it came to Austin, Texas to go to the University of Texas in 1976. Yeah, man, 44, 45 years ago. Crazy. Can't believe <laughs> uh, that deal. And, um, you know, uh, knew Jesus, but didn't know him, but fell in love with him in uh, uh, October of 1996 when I went on a men's retreat. Cool. at my church and had i known that men were going to be holding hands with each other <laughs> no, no, no go. and doing that bromance hugging it out yeah you know? yeah yeah and um 
so I end up in this retreat and, uh, and it, it started off that way. And there's about 80 guys in this room. And, and, and I gotta tell you, it, it sucked at first. You know? <laughs> and I, and there's no way, uh, that my lack of hum- humility would allow me to leave that room. And, uh, and then these guys would get up in front of all of us and they would start to vomit out all the putrid sins of, on the planet that they've committed. And I'm sitting back listening to this stuff going, Hey, bro, really, you ought to keep that in the deepest, darkest recesses of your skeletal closet. But then, then they would start connecting it to forgiveness, reconciliation, healing, uh, and redemption. And by the end of this weekend, 30 hour retreat, 10 of these men getting up front and doing all this vomiting, <laughs> I was blown away mm. and realized what a pathetic human and a man I was. Um, and, uh, and how I was like all them, the putrid sinners, uh, that we all are. And this presence of the Holy spirit, uh, just enveloped me. And, uh, and from that moment on, uh, I just asked God, what do you want me to do? Wow. What, you know, what is it? I'll do whatever, man. I don't know what it is. What do you want me to do? And, uh, you know, and I said, I've been, I've been driving this car for a long time and it's a train wreck. Why don't you drive for a while? Wow. Let's that's see awesome. So well, that's, that's a little nugget of, uh, nuggets. Of, we love man, nuggets over yeah. here, baby. That's great yeah. stuff. Yeah, what kind of uh, retreat was this? What was it called? Well, it was called Christ Renews His Parish. I'm Roman Catholic, uh, and, uh, but it, it built out of the Curcio movement. Uh, so if you've ever done a walk to Emmaus or Curcio, uh, that kind of thing, it's uh, mm-hmm. you know completely similar uh, to that. That's awesome. Well, look, Alan, that is cool, and I'm looking forward to hearing more on the background um, of this and how we've gotten to where we are. Uh, very neat um, and inspiring, I think, already for a lot of the listeners out there. And before we get kicking in, I'm just interested to know what our buddy over here, CC, that's what we call Craig's, got for us on the Would You Rather. So John and I, we don't know, and you don't know, and as the guest, we're going to let you go first. What you got, CC? Okay. So, Alan, we do this little thing called Would You Rather. It's like that game you'd play as a kid or even as an adult sometimes where you have two options and you either choose the lesser of two evils or the <laughs> whatever whatever comes to mind. Anyway, I was inspired by your ministry, Mobile Loaves and Fishes. So today's is rather simple. If you were stranded on an island with nothing to eat for a week, would you choose only the option of eating bread or only the option of eating fish? Um, I'm going to go fish, man. Uh, I like fish. We're good with fish, man. And uh, if it's an island off the uh, coast of Louisiana, redfish would be nice. Yes. <laughs> yeah. 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 Awesome. I spend a lot of time, by the way, gentlemen, in Delacroix. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah. And I'll be there in a couple of weeks, actually. So. Oh, wow. Awesome. But I'm a catcherman, not a fisherman. <laughs> That's awesome. How about you, Steve? Well, um, do I have the option to try to fish too? If I have to choose the bread, well, are you going to get bread or fish? Oh, no other. I, no. I would probably um, choose fish. Maybe that way I would at least have the opportunity to do some fishing myself. Maybe do some spear fishing. I don't know. I feel like I could get some. 
I'm like, I like the redfish too, Alan. Um, but I don't know how long I'm going to be on this Island. So I might need to go try a couple of different varieties to get a little different flavor while I'm out there. Nice. How about you, hot dog? I feel like this was inspired off that snapper I had this morning in my hands <laughs> in my client's house. <laughs> had a big old snapper in my hand this morning, Alan. One of my clients gave me. Um, I would I would go with the uh, the fish myself. I feel like I'll take in the good old protein. I could have a variety. I guess with the bread, I could have some variety too. I, I don't know if we're working on that when I can go fish, catch what I want. So I'd, I'd stay stay with the fish. You gonna switch it up on us? Or you gonna stay fish? No, nah, I'm staying fish. I like fish. Yeah, like you said, a little protein. Little mega three fish oil, you know, <laughs> mix it up. Now, if you get, no, I didn't, I didn't clarify. If I'd have said it's those little fried cod patties, <laughs> I thought about that. Are we eating like, ver- oh man, just you know, versus yeah. redfish on the half shell with some garlic butter? That's a little different. <laughs> oh man, yeah. <laughs> but anyway, I didn't clarify. So yes, the fish is what I'd go with. So, <laughs> well, very good, CC. Um, Okay, Alan, let's kind of delve our way into what you got going on out there. But I, And I have one quick question, which may be a prelude to it. I noticed on the website, uh, Mobile Oves and Fishes, I, I don't know, that just Googled it to get there, as I kind of told you pre-show here. Fabulous website, really well done, very neat. But I noticed you said something in one of the interviews about being a serial entrepreneur. So you have some background in entrepreneurship to some degree here? Yeah, well, uh, I was a real estate developer, hmm. uh, you know, uh, my career got into the real estate business in 1978. And, uh, uh, you know, I dropped out of the university of Texas. I was never really very good in school. And, uh, in, in fact, if I'm honest, I hated school <laughs> and, uh, and, and then, um, I learned how to pronounce and spell the word entrepreneur. <laughs> And, uh, and when I discovered that word, it was like a revelation uh, for me because uh, I'm, I'm not very obedient. I like doing things, you know, my way. And, uh, you know, that never worked out working for other people. Mm-hmm. And so I always had to create uh, my own environment, even from the youngest age. And, um, and so real estate was something that uh, fulfilled that deal and that continues today. I, I would look at mobile loads and fishes as an extraordinary entrepreneurial uh, operation. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. And so uh, that, that actually does speak to some of the background, the real estate. There is a lot of that going on out there on the property. And then I, I saw somewhere, Alan, can you kind of tell us how this whole deal got together? It's a, something to do, maybe I'm wrong, you and some of, some of your buddies um, started this with uh, maybe a van, a truck of some sort? Yeah, and so, um, you know, to back up to the retreat uh, deal and yeah. God, what do you want me to do? Uh, you know, the what do you want me to do started out at all the church things, you know, and uh so you volunteer for this thing, you volunteer for that thing, and uh, uh, now you're in the church deal. And uh, w- one of the things about me is I, I've always ascended to a level of leadership in whatever I've done. So in high school, whether it was football or the German club or the student council or uh, <laughs> the civic organizations I was involved with, somehow uh, either I'm a narcissist or I'm an actual, really a good leader. I'm not sure which one. <laughs> And, uh, and so I always, and then, you know, when you're volunteering, like in the church, uh, uh, they find you real quick. They find those people real fast. So they start sucking you in just a little by little. And, uh, 
And so I was doing all that uh, uh, goodness. And then one day, my wife and I were having coffee with a girlfriend of ours. And uh, now, um, my memory says that we were having coffee at Jason's Deli. My wife's memory believes that we were at home having coffee, and the girlfriend thinks that we were at church. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And so... um, you know, since I get to tell the story, it's going to be Jason's Deli. There you go. And, uh, and, and she is telling us, the girlfriend, about a ministry in Corpus Christi where on cold winter nights, multiple churches would come together and pool their resources uh, in order to take out to the men and women on the streets uh, during the cold winter night. And guys, at that moment in my head, the image of a catering truck or what some of us more affectionately call a roach coach, entered my brain as a distribution mechanism from those of us that have abundance to those that lack. And being a serial entrepreneur, it's important for people to understand that uh, when, when we get ideas like that in our brain, they just don't go away. Mm-hmm. And uh, I didn't share the idea at the time uh, with them, uh, a lot of it was, you know, my wife is married to a serial entrepreneur, so I've taken her up and down the roller coaster. That's right. Yeah. Um, and um, but I went to bed that night, going, "This is a great idea." In fact, you might even be brilliant, Alan. You thought <laughs> idea. And I'd wake up the next morning, and I had that thing franchised in my head at every church in every city where there's homeless and working poor populations, and you know. There was just an excitement about the idea. And finally, I decided to break the news to my wife. And I I said, honey, I have an idea. And she looks at me and she goes, oh, my God, here we go again. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, because she knows and uh, that when I get on point, we're not getting off point. And so uh, I got the courage to share it with some of my buddies that were part of that retreat process that, that I, I had been on. And I was actually uh, guiding another group of men through their own uh, retreat process. I was now the spiritual director. And, uh, and you know, four of my buddies just jumped on. They just, I'm in. Let's do this deal. Let's go out and buy a catering truck. Um, and so let's first figure out whether we can do this ourselves. So on the Tuesday evening, September 13th, 1998, we loaded up uh, 75 sack meals into the back of my buddy's green minivan. And uh, look, if there's any vehicle that a guy hates, especially a guy that loves to hunt and fish, it's a minivan. <laughs> right? Minivans, yeah. yeah. I mean, if you if you're living where you live, yeah, no, no minivan. <laughs> and uh, and so here we are out in this minivan, uh, trying to figure out whether uh, these five white guys from Westlake Hills could go out and serve the homeless who we didn't know. I mean, we just thought they were crackheads, glue sniffers, and prostitutes, and mm-hmm. chose that life. And uh, and uh, it was a mind blowing, transcending, converting evening. Uh, that was so powerful that uh, I'll never forget it. And 
and then here we are, you know, nearly 23 years later, having served about 6 million meals, built this community, uh, fallen deeply in love with the crackheads, the glue sniffers, and the prostitutes, realized that God made them in his image, his beautiful, glorious image, and, uh, and uh, just fundamentally called to be out there and love them the way that he would love us. So that's a beautiful that story. Was, that was the deal. Yeah. So what was one of the most surprising things to you whenever you got out and started serving this community? It sounds like you had a, may have had a misconception of who these people were uh, living on the streets. Well, it's, uh, you know, we all create our stereotypes, right? And, uh, you know, so one of the five main goals of Mobilos and Fishes, you know, those goals that are in etched in granite, number one is, uh, to transform the paradigm as to how people view the stereotype of the homeless. Because there's a lot that I learned. Um, number one, uh, they're out there because there's been some type of a cataclysmic event inside their family, profound catastrophic loss of family. Because uh, uh, John, Matt, Craig, and your family you got an addict, you got somebody that's mentally ill. I don't know their story now, but I absolutely know that you've got that deal. If you don't, you're one of the rarest people on the face of the planet. So you got a crazy Uncle Louie or your mother or your brother or uh, could be you. And, uh, uh, but somehow our families managed to come up underneath that. But for a very small population of people, in the very low hundreds of 1% in the entire United States of America, that uh, group of people, their families were so broken, they weren't there uh, to keep them from our street corners and under our bridges. So that would be number one. Number two, uh, having spent the night on the streets for at least 250 nights over the past 16 years, I can tell you there's nothing lazy about that deal. It's hard ass work and miserable. Uh, and there's nobody on the face of the planet, number three, that would choose that lifestyle. We make that up. We make that up uh, as a culture so that we can not have anything to do with it. Mm -hmm. So we'll say they have chosen that deal, but nobody chooses that deal. And what I try to do is I try to take everybody back to the moment when they were 12 years old. Remember when you were 12, man, you're laying in bed at night. And it's that twilight uh, period uh, just before you're about to not off to sleep. You're looking out the window into the starry, starry skies, and you're dreaming. You're fantasizing about what you're going to be when you're going to grow up. Okay. And I'm going to tell you, my three dreams that I had when I was little. One, I thought I could become a rock and roll star. <laughs> I played the guitar and I had a band. And, and, and I could see me, you know, as the Beatles or Led Zeppelin or ACDC or you name it, your music of choice on stage. And today it's 65 years old when I'm cruising down the highway and nobody's in my car. 
and the radio's as loud as it possibly can go, my mind is on stage with that guitar in hand singing that song. So that dream has never left me, although uh, I can't sing and I'm a really shitty guitar player. <laughs> there you go. Number two, I played football, you know? And when I was in junior high and high school, I, I was okay. I was great in junior high school, early high school year, pretty doggone good. But then as all my friends started to mature, uh, the equalizer came out and, um, and, uh, my high school, Alvin high school, all white school almost was playing an all black school in Galveston called ball high, almost all black. And their, their middle linebacker was a white guy named Jim Yarborough. This is in 1974, you know, time frame, And, um, uh, just to tell you, Jim Yarbrough uh, went on to play at the University of Texas and was awarded the Outland Trophy for wow. the greatest uh, offensive lineman in college freaking football. Yeah. So here I am as an <laughs> offensive center going up against this linebacker who every play, and when I say every play, it was humiliating. Look, <laughs> I mean, hurt me, hurt, hurting me. I'd never had that experience before. And I knew at that moment that college or pro football was not in my deal. But look, when I'm watching a great game right now and something happens, great tackle, great hit, I'm still there at 65 years old. <laughs> I can see me doing that deal. And then the third thing that I love is uh, I love airplanes. Uh, I had my pilot's license. I love the smell of burning jet fuel on, uh, and avgas on, on airfields. And, um, I dreamed that I could be a jet fighter pilot at 12 years old. And when I see something like an F-35 screaming across the sky, guess who's flying that thing in the cockpit? But that's a $500 million airplane, and Uncle Sam will never put me in that airplane, ever. I can tell you what was never in my dream or in your dream or in any human being's dream ever in the history, and that was being homeless, smoking crack, and prostituting on a street corner somewhere, ever. So it's no choice. People may say that they've chosen that, but what they're really telling you is I've resigned myself to this miserable lifestyle and, uh, and I'm going to disguise it as choice. And, um, and then these are hardworking people. You see the panhandler standing on the street corner and, uh, and you're thinking that lazy, you know, S O B. And, uh, but I challenge you to go out there and stand there for nickels, dimes, and quarters, and mostly spit and beer cans thrown at you and FUs and that kind of stuff uh, for 50 bucks a day. And, uh, and I began to ask, why, why are you out here begging, man? And then I realized something very profound. When I moved to Austin in 1976, out of the Houston area, there were no panhandlers on street corners. There were men and women selling bottles of water, newspapers, 
flowers, cow skulls, cow skins, and, and I can tell by your character, your favorite, Velvet Elvis art. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, uh, nobody was begging, and but we outlawed all that stuff. And now the only thing that they can do is the First Amendment free speech right to hold a sign and beg. Go to Mexico and get off the airplane. Go to Nicaragua. Go to Italy. And you, you get assaulted by a gauntlet of entrepreneurs. You come to the United States of America, the most abundant society on the planet, and you get assaulted by these beggars on our street corners. It makes no sense to me. I'd rather have the opportunity to buy water or flowers or Velvet Elvis art if I like it. So uh, those are, those are, yeah. And frankly, look, uh if you're if you're living out there in misery uh and, and sleeping on concrete cardboard on top of concrete i'm going to figure out a way to maybe try to sleep a little bit better and that might involve you know a few beers uh, might involve smoking some weed uh might involve uh i mean god no telling what will happen uh, you know and, and and living out there will drive you crazy and so i quit putting my judgment hat on mainly because God told me, Hey, now that's not in your uh, repertoire of, uh, of gifting. You're not the judge. I am. I'm the only one. We'll decide what we're going to, what we're going to do. And, um, and just start loving on people the best, uh, I can. Yeah. I think you're, yeah, that's really insightful because I think a lot of people share that same misconception whenever they encounter a homeless, not knowing their background or why they're out there. And, um, it's amazing because I think a lot of these individuals probably like whenever they first encountered you, I mean, they probably came up with a sort of a guarded uh, reservation thinking, well, we're always been treated this way. How did your uh, ministry start to see some of those barriers being broken down where they opened up to, Hey, this person kind of sees more than just the, the, the ragged clothes or the, the unsanitary conditions. They see me as an individual and kind of start breaking those barriers down. And, and what kind of uh, examples did you have where you saw had, experienced that? Well, it's all about time in, you know, trust is built uh, uh, over time. We've all been in, uh, in distrustful relationships uh, uh, in our, in our past. And uh, so, you know, when you, when you imagine trying to rebuild trust, uh, uh, what that's like, or even trying to build trust, uh, it's, it's a fairly complicated uh, deal, but uh, bottom line, it's, a, it's about time in. And, and sometimes for many of our neighbors, it's a lot of time. It's a lot of years uh, because everyone in their lives have, uh, have disappointed them. You know, I've got uh, one of my buddies, Will, that lives in the community. And uh, when he was 12 years old, his father was selling him to other men. Mm -hmm. uh, and... Uh, uh, you know, and then the drugs, the alcohol, uh, prison, uh, the system, uh, you know, the failure of the people that should have been the most trustful in your life, uh, completely, uh, uh failed him. And, you know, we've been buddies for probably 15 years and it's been a, you know, one of those deals where, you know, he'd go off the rails, but, uh, now we're in a multi-year a pretty stable uh, uh, environment. Uh, and, you know, it, it's funny because every now and then he falls in love on these internet fall in love deals, uh, which never work. And uh, so a couple of years ago, uh, 
he had fallen in love with some woman in LA and uh, and so he leaves the village to go to LA by bus and marry her pays all of his money wow because uh, he lives on SSI or SSDI he doesn't have a pot to piss in ends up in LA and and calls his future wife and of course she needs another hundred bucks to come pick him up which she didn't have so that was the end of the relationship and she calls us and uh, my wife who's in the other room listening to this uh, she and he are really really close friends and he's calling and you know begging to come home and and uh, and uh, she gets off the phone with him and I I look at us and just get him a bus ticket she goes no He's going to have to sleep there for a couple of days and then we'll get him a bus ticket. <laughs> and, uh, you know, and then we bring him back and, um, you know, and so over time when you don't abandon people, uh, <clears throat> that you end up building a, uh, a relationship, even, you know, when you think, do you, do you guys have children? Yes. Two of them do yes. John and Craig. We do. Yeah. Yeah. And what would it take for you to, throw your kids in hell I'd, I'd give my life up before i'd let that happen no no that's exactly right so uh and that's how i think god would be i mean he's far more compassionate than you are right i mean <laughs> absolutely we yep. can't and so um you know look i can't wait to get to heaven to meet judas iscariot because i don't believe that god put him into hell you know, and I hope he, I hope he's there. And, uh, and so the only person that we've ever known to go to hell is the rich man and Lazarus. Remember that story? Yeah. He didn't tell us that Judas went to hell. We don't know what happened to Judas. And, uh, so I'm hopeful for Judas. And, and that's how I look at these men and women, no matter how sinful, uh, they are, uh, and ultimately, they have to be held accountable to their behavior. I don't have to be held accountable to that uh, that behavior. So I, I've just decided to really love them as best as I can. And that doesn't mean that it's not without some yelling and screaming and some frustration along the way. So, And if I could give them a spanking like I used to give my kids, I would do it. <laughs> <laughs> well, Alan, you talked about starting off with a, a green minivan. Yet uh, you've been mentioning this uh, village, and I think if our listeners, whenever they check out your website, they're going to see a pretty amazing, uh, a pretty amazing accomplishment. That's much more than a green minivan. So, what sort of happened to from that moment when you had that little van and handed out those first meals to kind of where you're at today, and you know that journey, how how it all happened? Yeah, and a little insight into the village itself. Yeah, and so um, you know the way that I look at God driving the car metaphorically he's the navigator right he's the one guiding uh, everything and um and so when that truck look it all started with just let's go feed people we thought that was the right thing to do but there were three profound uh, elements about that truck number one the truck went to where the people are as opposed to hurting the people to say a soup kitchen, I'm not against soup kitchens, but you know, that's not where you and I eat every day. So the truck goes there. The second thing is that that truck 
uh, we don't use any leftover or donated food. Uh, it's all, you know, wholesale food supplier purchased, you know, uh, food and it's abundant when that truck goes out and people get to make choices. You just don't get your food unit. You get to make choices about what, what is on the truck. And then the third thing that's really important about that truck is that those that are serving and those being served are on the same side of the serving counter, which required a one-on-one -on -one intimate human-to-human heart-to-heart connection with people. I had to, hey, hey, my name's Alan. And you, hey, my name's John. My name's Matt. My name's Craig. Um, and then, then the next time the truck that I would go out on the truck, if I saw you guys, I, I could yell across the deal and go, hey, Matt. And then suddenly Matt, the despised outcast, lost and forgotten, uh, nobody gives a shit, goes, that guy knows my name. That's amazing. And then next thing you know, uh, Matt and Alan are building a relationship. Hey, man, what's going on in your life? And, oh, man, I heard that my mother, you know, or something. And would you pray? Let's go over here. Let's pray. Pray it out right now, man. And then a relationship would develop. And then we started going out on the streets and spending the night with them in 2003. And then now the relationship is getting deeper and deeper and deeper. And this is where we're learning about the profound catastrophic loss of family. And then uh, you're wondering, why are people homeless in this abundant country that we live in? I mean, we got more money than any place on the planet. Why is it that people are homeless? And, um, um, and then I realized, well, the government's involved. So, uh, you know, they kind of muck a lot of things up. And, uh, <laughs> but what if, <laughs> what if I, uh, is muck okay to say on the, yeah. <laughs> you good you good brother yeah um what if i go out and buy got an idea to go buy a gently used recreational vehicle lift one guy up off the streets lift him into a privately owned rv park that was 2005 uh, that guy still lives with us uh, by the way sam cole and um and then the serial real estate entrepreneur that I am, how about let's build a KOA, an RV park on steroids, you know? And um, <laughs> let, let's do, and I thought it was an affordable way uh, to do something. And then it turned into be the big national movement that it's, uh, it's, it's turning into. And, and it's crazy. People are coming from all over the place to check us out. Yeah, I saw that. You can do the Airbnb and stay out there in the end. The the that that style going on. And can you give Alan the listener a little look about the property? I know it's about fifty one acres or, or so. I might be wrong on that somewhat. Um, there's different areas. I see a phase two started back a couple of years ago. Can you give a little insight into what exactly is going on on the property, along with um, the many? Uh, it's self sustaining for the folks staying out there, paying rent, all those. Can you just give a little insight into some of that? Very neat stuff. Yeah, well, we call it a 51-acre master plan community. We're actually planning 126 additional acres right now that will add wow. over 1,400 homes. But uh, 51 acres, it was a phase one and two. Phase one was 27 acres. Phase two is 24 acres. Um, 
you drive into the property and the first thing you encounter is our outdoor Alamo draft house movie theater, which is a, uh, a 44 foot, uh, uh, outdoor, you know, drive-in movie screen, uh, old timey that, uh, was refurbed and it is, uh, sitting in a 500 seat outdoor amphitheater and surrounding the amphitheater is a 19 unit bed and breakfast uh, of eclectic uh, tiny homes and RVs and yurts and teepees. And uh, I mean, how dumb do you got to be gents to put a bed and breakfast in the middle of a village that's meant for the chronically homeless. <laughs> and, uh, and, you know, I mean, stupid is as stupid does, but that deal is booked solid. You can't hardly get a room right now. They're, they're closed because of the whole COVID thing, but uh, we're going to open up probably by June. Uh, and, you know, it, it's crazy. We have a medical clinic, a store. We have a car care business. You can bring your automobile out there and get uh, oil change and state inspections on our property. Um, we have a hundred on phase one, a hundred RVs and about 135, uh, of these really cute uh, tiny homes. And then on phase two, another 100 RVs and 110 RVs and 200 uh, micro homes uh, out there. Uh, we have a organic uh, a farming operation. All the food is free to the residents that live there. Uh, we have a micro enterprise business deal that goes back to, you know, our people are entrepreneurial as well. Uh, they would rather sell things. Uh, so we have an art house, a blacksmithing shop, a wood shop, uh, the car care business, uh, pottery operation, silk screening, uh, uh, you know, stuff like that, jewelry making, leather work, so people can come in and create products that we can sell. Last year alone, uh, through a variety of all of our dignified, uh, of, of our micro enterprises, we distributed uh, uh, I think it is $958,000 worth of dignified income. Incredible. Wow. Got your money. So it's just, uh, you know, really a, just a super incredible uh, place. But, you know, the videos and my pontificating about it doesn't do it justice. You've got to come see it. And we do tours every day. Hey, Alan, I know that you talked about uh, having some work opportunity for the residents who live out there. What kind of changes do you see uh, in these residents whenever they get back to using some of their God-given talents in order to support themselves and uh, get more of their self-worth by earning a living and paying their rent and doing some of those things which they have lost? Yeah, and so the foundation of everything that we do out here, the foundation of the village rests on top of Genesis chapter 2, verse 15. So just after God created the Garden of Eden, and in the garden is everything, uh, he then takes the man, settles him in the Garden of Eden to cultivate and care for it. Then the Lord God takes the man, settles him in the Garden of Eden to cultivate and care for it. So it's extremely important from a kingdom perspective, we're going to follow God's will. He wants you and I to be settled. And when we are settled, and we're not anxious, and we're not freaking out, we're not living outside in, in filth and uh, 
we're not being despised and outcast, then it moves us into this place where we can begin to cultivate using the gifts that God has given us. And there's nothing more powerful. Uh, you know, one of the things that I love is I got a buddy of mine in the village, uh, you know, both legs have been amputated. He's in a motorized, uh, uh, chair and, uh, and he'll be out there, uh, uh multiple days a week with a blower following the weed eaters and the lawnmower guys and blowing off all the sidewalks and, and streets in this wheelchair. And, uh, and he works hard and the place looks spotless, uh, because of, because of him, he's got no freaking legs. Amazing. And, um, uh, you know, and so it's, it's, it, and, and then the miracle, once you're settled and you're cultivating, you begin to care. And when you're on the street corner and your hands out, all we see is a beggar, you know, but what we want to do is turn that over so that the hand is in and doing something for somebody else. And so the miracle of what we witness is that when people are settled and sometimes it takes a long time to get settled and they begin to cultivate using God's gifts, um, then they start doing things uh, for other people. I'll tell you not too long ago, uh, six, eight weeks ago, uh, you know, one of our, you know, addicts fell asleep on his couch, smoking a cigarette. His RV catches on fire. Alarms are going off and, uh, uh, and, and the, and the, the RV's on fire. 911's called, uh, two formerly chronically homeless men from that community jumped inside that trailer in that fire in order to pull that man uh, to safety. The man ultimately died. He died uh, mm. about a week ago, but he was in the hospital for four or five weeks, you know, with some severe stuff going on. But two other men went in there to rescue him. Both of them had to be transported to the hospital. They were both released pretty quick, but, you know, smoke inhalation and, and that kind of deal. What else you want? Yeah. What else you want, Mike? That that's incredible. It leads me to a question I have for you, Alan. You know, uh, we love to motivate and inspire through faith and hope, and I feel like the human spirit is really amazing. There's not not much more like it. That's a perfect example of what you just give right there. Can you tell a little bit about not giving up and having hope in humanity, hope in people? Because I do think, and we've hit on this, we. A society in which we all are made of the flesh. We judge at times. We don't look at people the way we should. When we're all, we all are made in God's image and likeness. Can you speak to some of the the amazing things that you've probably per personally witnessed with the human spirit in general? Well, um, first of all, you know, you, you got to reflect inward. I mean, you you you, you know, you you got to be in front of the mirror and. And I, I can tell you, nowhere in Scripture does it does God tell us to give up, you know. And I, I don't care who you are. And uh, I heard a witness uh, by a uh, a former, I mean, a pastor uh, that was a uh, a chaplain in the Walls Unit in Huntsville, death row, 
and he tells this story uh, about a man that he stood at his side when they were executing him, who he had got to know uh, over several years, who had uh, who had kidnapped, raped, hacked up a couple of little girls, put them in garbage bags, threw them over a bridge into the Trinity River. And he's telling this story in great detail and at great length. I'm giving you the, uh, the complete uh, Cliff Notes version. Uh, he's talking about the relationship that he built with that man. He's talking about uh, uh, his conversion and coming uh, uh, to Christ. And, uh, and when you're in the room where they're going to execute you uh, uh, through lethal injection, uh, uh, you know, there's two rooms with glass and there's, uh, you know, the victim's family uh, can be in there watching. There's the other deal. And, uh, you know, and I guess people are hoping for closure, but uh, uh, he said he was holding this man's hands and, uh, and that, uh, and he had no doubt in his mind that the moment that they could declared him dead, that he was laying in the arms of Jesus, no doubt. And, uh, and that's a shocking imagery for us yeah. as humans, which are so built on retribution, but that's not what scripture teaches us. And, uh, and so, um, I think we first have to look inward at our own selves about, are we doing, because see, when we, when you reflect, when you know the truth, the truth will set you free, right? And it's right. not just about that Jesus is the Son of God and the Lord of Lords. It's bigger than that. You know, it's it's all the truth. It's the truth about your sinfulness. It's the truth about your thoughts when you're driving down the road in your car and you're looking at that beautiful lady out the deal. What are the thoughts going through, you know, your brain on that? It's recognizing that at that moment you're sinful. And uh, if you're going to give up on somebody, you need to recognize that that's a, a, that's a simple thought. So we just don't give up. Now, I will, uh, uh, you know, sometimes we have to excommunicate people out of the community because they're a, a threat or sometimes right. people are going to get arrested and people have to be a, held accountable to their civil behavior and, and all of that. But it doesn't mean that we give up, uh, you know, on them. Um, but look, this isn't a miracle of fixing and repairing phenomenally broken people. It's a matter of loving on people and, uh, and caring for them until the day they die and then giving them the extraordinary dignity of a profound, uh, uh, death. And, you know, we cremate our friends and we inter their ashes in a columbarium right in the middle of our property. Uh, when people die on our property to give you kind of an example of what happens, like if, like if, if somebody dies, the, the way that it works, somebody dies, let's say they're not on hospice or anything. They, they, they die. We find them dead in their home. Well, the police, 911 gets called. The cavalry comes out. Uh, and, uh, you know, there's probably not going to be any resuscitation efforts, but sometimes there is. Um, and then the police are called and an investigation ensues. The tape comes out, uh, and they have to investigate. Um, and then when their investigation is done, they call the coroner 
who's going to come pick up the body, and you don't know when the coroner's going to come. Uh, it may be hours and hours, depending on what's going on in the city. Uh, people die every day in Austin, by the way. Uh, and, um, uh, and then they have to do their investigation. So it's a long, arduous process. And somewhere between 50 and 80 people will gather from the moment of notice and never leave outside their home until that body is removed. Wow. wow. And, and the coroner knows now, they try to tell us that, because we make them stop with the body on the gurney so we can pray over the body. It used to be that they, they tell you that, no, we can't do that. And they go, look, man, we're going to block you. Yeah. Yeah. We're praying. Yeah. It, it'll be short. We respect your time. You know, it's not going to be a, uh, you know, uh, you know, sweet baby Jesus, uh, you know, out of uh, what was that movie with uh, Talladega Nights? That Talladega Nights, man. <laughs> you know, I'll tell you what, I'm going to memorize. I'm going to memorize that prayer one of these days. <laughs> uh, it won't be that deal. And uh, yeah, that was phenomenal. And, uh, and that, that's, that's what happens. And look, our expectations in the community, you know, we have three rules to live in the community. Rule number one, above all rules, turns out to be the same rule that you live by. You've got to pay rent. Mm -hmm. You don't pay rent. You don't pay your mortgage. You don't get to stay there. That's simple. It's how it works in our community. And we don't have a rent collection problem. It is so minor, it's insignificant. They pay their rent. Rule number two, you got to obey civil law. I don't make civil law. I don't enforce civil law. I'm not allowed to. But you got to obey civil law. And I'm going to tell you, if you do something that's disobedient to the law, we're going to call the cops. Let them deal with it. And you'll have that problem. Now, I'm going to tell you that the police don't care about dope and alcohol. They just don't. It's off the deal. <laughs> they quit the war on drugs. Unless you're Pablo Escobar moving 50 billion you know, <laughs> tons of cocaine into the country. They don't care. You know, not about these guys. Um, and then the third rule is you live in a community like many of you live in a homeowners association or a condo association, and there's rules. You know, you got to mow your grass, you, your dog poos in the yard, you got to clean up the poo. You know, there's just rules and they're simple rules. And that's, that's what we do. We don't, we don't tell people that they can't do drugs or alcohol or any of that. They just can't be an asshole as a result of those things. <laughs> Neither can you or me. Man, yeah. that's good stuff. And um, Alan, I feel like we could chat with you all day, my brother. We're, we're kind of nearing the end of our time, and we've hit on this a little bit. I know you have, but we'll ask it, I guess, formally to you and then see if the guys have anything to, to follow up or you want to add. But that would be, who or what do you, in fact, think is driving your car? Well, there's no question, gentlemen, that Jesus is driving uh, uh, my vehicle. And uh, uh, we, we talk about it all the time uh, internally. Uh, uh, God is the CEO. He's the visionary founder. Uh, he is, uh, uh, he's the president. He's the board of directors. He's, he's everything. Uh, and anybody that doesn't believe that deal, uh, you know, uh, it, it's not going to work out well for you. Uh, 
uh, with our deal. Uh, we lean into him uh, very intently. Uh, uh, we open up every meeting with prayer, uh, and it's really all about uh, that work. Uh, I trust him to, to the to the most infinite uh, uh, degree. That's awesome, my man. Hey, Alan, I once heard it said that God put wealthy or people with abundance on this earth to help out the poor or those less fortunate, but he put the poor and less fortunate on earth to allow the wealthy a chance to get to heaven. And I think you've kind of emulated that. Um, where can people go to find more about your ministry? Maybe, I don't know if you accept donations, contributions. Is there a website or place they can help share or at least spread the word or even if that's not an opportunity, just any words of wisdom for them to, to, to give back? Well, you can always go to our website at MLF, Mike Lima Frank, or mobileloadsandfishes.org, MLF.org, and there's a ton of stuff there. And, of course, on the front page is a big old fat donate button, so uh, uh, you can always do that. But the best thing that you can do, actually, is uh, – uh, get in your car and let him drive you to Austin, Texas and come see what we're doing. So uh, uh, put him in control and come down and check out uh, what we're doing and then see how that inspires you. You know, Alan, I, I, what I call this is some fly happenings, man. You got some really good stuff going on out there. And I'm always trying to get these two to, to make a little trip with me, go somewhere. This might be it. I'll get you on my team and we can try to get out there, the three of us, and come meet you in person and check out what's going on. I think it would be quite the now, inspiration. Y'all are in Baton Rouge? Uh, Lake Charles. Lake Charles. I mean, it's not that far. I'll be driving. It's eight hours from here to New Orleans, Delacroix. So, I mean, yeah. it's, uh, what, six hours? Uh, how far are you from New Orleans or Delacroix? A couple hours? About three, right? Three hours. You're, you're five hours from Austin. That's man. right. That, yeah. No excuses for them. I agree, Alan. Pretty close. Zero, man. Yeah. Yeah, that's just being disobedient to the Lord, you two. <laughs> Tell it, Alan. Come. And, I knew and, I liked you. And, Y'all need to stop driving your own car. <laughs> they let their wives drive it, Alan. That's what it really is. Well, look, my brother, we appreciate you uh, coming on with us. It really has been quite a journey here today, and, and I would just implore our listeners to check out what they've got going on out there and, and maybe, you know, not judge a book by its cover. I think there's a lot to be said and a lot to be learned from uh, for the conversation today. And until next time, we'll catch y'all later. Aye. Hey, y'all. If you've been enjoying picking up what we've been laying down, subscribe and never miss an episode. Find us on social media and let us know who's driving your car this week. You can find us on Facebook and Instagram at Who's Driving Your Car Podcast. Perfect timing, sun is shining, nothing more. Sing with me